connected. Good morning. It is Friday, October 21st, 2022. And this is the Radio Ranch. Uh, usually with Roger Sales, he hasn't shown up yet. Uh, but Fridays are Brent Allen Winter's Days. So uh, we do have him here. And as soon as uh, we bring him online, we can get started. And hopefully Roger will be joining us later and we'll be able to add the stream to Eurofolk Radio. Right now, we're going out on radio.globalvoiceradio.net. So, good morning, Brent. How you doing? My other connection, Lord willing, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah you missed me? Yep. Yeah, you still Let got to me. work on it. Okay, okay, I haven't got it done yet. I'm scrambling. So here's what I'd like to do, if you can still hear me. If somebody somebody there said they would ask a question, and I, we all agreed that might be a good idea. I had a whole list of questions, and if I can't respond properly, maybe somebody else can, or we can discuss it. So uh, let me know if I'm coming through better. I think I'm getting hooked up. No. You're, you're a little choppy. Yeah, no, still not. You're you're just riding the raid, the ragged edge. So as soon as we get uh, Brent Winter's connection working, then uh, we'll get moving. So uh, interesting uh, news uh, bite uh, hit me this morning. Uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon, uh, apparently got two years in a federal penitentiary and I'm just looking at uh, how the patriot movement and the freedom movement uh, have really been attacked on pretty much every platform they've uh, been deplatformed they've been censored they've been demonized they've been defunded and that speaks volumes to me because I got to think that we're doing something right. If they're attacking us, we've got to be uh, putting a hitch in their giddy up somewhere. And I, I cannot help but believe that if these patriots that were having all these troubles were nationals, that they would not be in the position that they're in. And uh, I believe that. Uh, does anybody else in the room have a comment and want to weigh in on well, my thought? That being said, I believe there was a lady, one of these January 6th gals, that uh, was told the judge she was a national. He told her he didn't care. So that, you know, when your government wants to be a tyrant, it's not going to much matter. Yeah, there's well, actually a documentary uh, that has her in it. And uh, yep. I was a little, I was a little irritated about it because if Bobby was going to walk beside her and teach her how to do it, why didn't he just walk in there and stand beside her and, and represent her? Because we're allowed to have a representative, and, and so that uh, that that irritated me on that. I felt like she was she was given a bunch of information in a short period of time, and and went in there and, and hung herself with, with what the little bit she knew. Okay. Um. Um. Have I got a connection yet, Paul? Yes. Sounds good. 
it sounded better. Oh, good. Okay, right well, there. I'm I'm here. Oh, good. Well, I'm here. Uh, if I'm if I'm usable, uh, use me. Did somebody have a comment or a question? I, I wanted to yep. weigh in real quick, if I may, to start the discussion. Then somebody mentioned they had a whole list of questions. That'll give us something yep. worthwhile, hopefully, to talk about. I'll find out. But, um, you know, I think we're talking wrong. We're talking wrong. We're saying, uh, if, and, and I understand what you mean, Paul, when you say this. You said if everybody was a national. Uh, everybody is a national. If you live here in America, you are a national. Uh, we need to be saying that and, and uh, filing the, the affidavit and saying what you are is just an affirmation of what you are. It's not a, it doesn't change your status. And I, we talk that way. I'm saying we shouldn't be talking that way. We should be, we should be writing the truth and saying the truth. Um, that's just for starters. And of course, judges don't have a clue about any of it. And uh, other people in government don't either. What they want is a paycheck in retirement. Why? And they don't have to know anything about uh, what they're doing to get a paycheck in retirement, by and large. They just have to show up every day. Judges and other bureaucratic-minded people. Now, not all judges are bureaucratic-minded, but a lot of them are increasingly so. And I'm in good company when I say that. Justice Scalia made that point over and over again. That was what he was fighting that's what we're fighting. And one other thing then I'll address because somebody else brought it up. And again, I understand the sentiment. Uh, somebody said, well, why didn't uh, so-and-so go into court and represent her? Well, the reason he didn't do that probably was um, was because uh, he'd have been thrown in jail for contempt if he'd have pressed the issue. That's why. And he wouldn't have been given due process. These, this is the way it works in court. If you go in and try to talk when the judge doesn't want you to, and regardless of whether the judge is right or wrong. Now, somebody just sent a message to me and said, well, you're tearing down what Roger is saying. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not tearing it down. I'm just saying uh, we're, we should, if you want to file the affidavit, that's a good idea. Let them know who you think you are if that's appropriate. But uh, don't say I'm changing my status. You're not changing your status. You are who you are. You're an American and you're a national. And that's what we've always been known as. And we need to affirm those things. You can affirm it in writing and you can affirm it when you talk. And what I'm trying to hear do now today is to encourage people to talk uh, correctly, not politically correctly. They want you to say, well, I made myself a national. Well, once you say that, then you're trying to tell, uh, they're, they're going to view it that you're trying to tell the government that you disagree with them. You don't have to disagree with them. Just say, here's what I am. Uh, and here's my rights. I have a right to remain silent. I have a right to speak and not to speak. I have a right to trial by jury. I have a right to counsel. I have a right to keep and bear arms. I'm not getting those rights. You never took those from me. You can't take them from me. It's impossible that you can take from me the responsibilities that God has given to me. That's it what our Declaration of 76 says. So, no, I'm not tearing down what Roger's saying. What I'm, what I'm doing is reinforcing what he's saying, and I'm saying this. Let's say it. Let's don't say something else while we're doing these things. That's my, my comment about that. But is there someone here, someone? Raise Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was putting in the chat there that the key thing is to affirm that you are not a citizen under the 14th Amendment, Correct. 
Yeah. Well, if, if yeah, if that's what your conviction is, I'm like Roger. I'm I'm not here to tell you what to say and what not to say, mm-hmm. but I am here to tell you that in a co- our common law tradition, in our common law tradition, uh, only freedom is really possible in a common law country. We have one. We have the machinery, mm-hmm. and in that kind of a tradition, it's up to every man. It's up to every man to know what is right, make his own decisions, and follow up on them. As, as uh, one famous congressman was well known for saying, be sure you're right, then go ahead. And we can't hide behind anybody. We can't hide behind what the Pope says. We can't hide behind what the Supreme Court says. We can't hide behind what Roger says. We can't hide behind what a professor, a favorite professor at school says. We can't even hide behind what our parents say. In the final judgment, we stand before God, and we will answer for all the deeds done, all deeds done, and all things said whether good or evil. Now, so I, I don't want to have to depend upon, and saying I, de- I depended on somebody else ain't going to wash. And that doesn't have anything to do with it. Uh, we've got to, we got to uh, enjoy the journey of finding out ourselves, and that's our job as Christian men and women to do that. And if you're not a Christian man or woman, or you don't know what that is, well, well just keep listening. Maybe you'll figure it out later. But if you're not a Christian man or woman, you're part of the problem, not the solution. That's axiomatic. Uh, somebody, though, a while ago said that they had a, oh, I got a whole list of things we can talk about, a whole list of questions. And I'm anxious, chafing at the bit to find out what this person's been thinking about. Oh, that, about. that's me. That's I me. I want to end the pipe up and say, oh, okay. All right. I can start with question number one. Well, if you what want. was it? Devin. All right. So, yep, Devin. <laughs> That'd be a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> So, and I think this is a, I, I haven't seen this. I've listened to a lot of stuff. I've read a lot of stuff that Rogers put out. I haven't gotten a clear answer on this one. So, by the way, three weeks ago, I got married. Very exciting. Um, so my question is, how does being a national affect a spouse who is a citizen? Well, again, we're, we're back to talking in ways that may or may not be true. Is that, is that your spouse a citizen or a national? She would be... What does at, your, at this point, okay. What's so, the reality? Uh, let, let me rephrase that. Let's say spouse A um, has given up the U.S. citizenship and is only a U.S. national, but spouse B still retains both the U.S. national status and... United States citizen status. Well, number one, your standing before the law is an individual status when it comes okay. to gotcha. what the Constitution talks about citizenship and national. That's an individual status, but your status can can put you in a position with marriage can put you in a position mm-hmm. of what sailors called denizens denizens Uh, sailors call it denizens when they talk about people that are underwater that uh, are not natives there that's not their natural environment but you can be underwater and be friendly with the critters down there well then you're a denizen and the bible makes this distinction too the bible uses the word stranger to translate about five hebrew words Stranger in the land also uses the word sojourner, sojourner in the land. And indiscriminately, in most translations, those words are thrown around like cordwood. But 
The Hebrew text is precise as to what kind of stranger people are, foreigner, alien, um, all those synonyms stress different things. And there is a difference between a person that's here that is friendly, productive, and part of our society who is not a U.S. national or a citizen. And the old word in Latin for that is denizen, denizen. In other words, you're a foreigner. You're a foreigner, but we like to have you here. I met a, well, I meet people constantly when I travel that are foreigners, as they say in the Wabash Valley, and they, they're here, and I talk to them, and I find out what they're doing and what their point of view is, and I said, well, I hope you stay. Whatever the case, I hope you stay. The other people, I just assume they leave, because they're not here to be a productive part and to be Americans. They want to subvert and take over, and, and they make that clear. When you talk to them, it doesn't take long. You can find out. They just want to get what they can get out of the situation and leave. Well, they're not contributing to our society. The people that founded America are first, as we call them, our first fathers. We call the pilgrims. The pilgrims were Puritans. They were a sect of the Puritan political party in, in England that at that time uh, took over Parliament. And they eventually went to the Netherlands. They weren't welcome in England, so they went to the Netherlands before they came to America. Then they came back to England because their their children, their boys, were being drafted into the Dutch army, and they didn't like that, and a few other things. But while they were there, they were denizens. In other words, the, the Dutch people liked them, and they wanted them there because they, they settled down. They were productive. They were an important part of the community where they lived. They built their own church building and the Dutch people even went to church with them. They were Reformed in their point of view, like the, the Puritans. Uh, that's what a denizen does. He goes, He's in a foreign place, and he, he works. So is, your, uh, is the, one of the spouses a denizen, friendly? That doesn't mean they're a citizen or a national, but it does mean that we like to have them here, and because they're married, because of their relationship, they can stay. You know, there was a time in America when we— uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure you made much of that. Now we still do to some degree. I'm not sure if you fully understand the question, yeah, go ahead. Um, but this is still fantastic information. Well, I Thank probably you. don't. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just um, basically uh, I'm pursuing um, quite possibly, you know, this path that Roger has laid out my now wife. Um, she's not sure yet, although I have been educating her on it. Um, just, uh, I just want to know if there's. Let, let me stop you. Let me stop yeah. you a minute. Your wife's an American. Your wife Absolutely. is an American, Absolutely. and she was she's, born she's here. She's right? American. Yeah, we were right? both born in Michigan. Okay. Well, then she she's a national. Then that she is a national. That's what yep. she is, regardless she, of what of any whatever any evil member of government says or any oh, bureaucrat or hold any other minute, ignorant you? member of government that's not acting. Can you hold up? Well, just wait, a wait, 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 wait. Murr wants to say something. Uh, Paul English is right, giving Murr, us some kind of information so, on Eurofolk. But that's probably down to me having a, uh, a conversation. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Um, there we go. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and uh, what's going on here? Let me just check this. All right. Okay. So that's that. So I'm going to uh, de-plug here and maybe contact him. And uh, I don't know if we can port this thing into here uh, for today. Let's let's see what we can do. Actually, maybe I can. Just a second.
Oh, yeah, that was it. It was already in it. Apparently, this is Paul from Eurofolk Radio. Yeah. Speaking uh, to us from somewhere in the vicinity of York, York, Yorkshire, England. Yes. Mara? Yes. Mara, if you can reach out to Paul English, see if he can port Global Voice Radio onto Eurofolk. I don't have any contact. Okay. I'm just listening to what he I've says. Got his, I've got his Skype. Uh, let me get into Skype. And uh, what's the, the address again? It's radio dot. Global voice radio dot net. Okay. Radio dot global voice radio dot net. Yep. And use Skype in a while, and now it's. I'm gonna download it, I guess. Let's see here. I've got one for you, Brent. Something to think about. The uh, Illinois Constitution talks about some of the gun rights are subject to police powers. What's the meaning of subject to the police power? How in depth is that? Uh, Qualification. You're quoting. You're you're quoting the state constitution. Yeah, I believe it's in the gun ownership uh, part the of the constitution. Constitu it says subject to the police powers. Well, I'll give you what I think it means, and of course, no court has weighed in on that. Probably you're quoting, you're not that they'd have to, but I'll, but it's a common sense question. Yeah, I believe it's in the gun ownership. It's a common sense uh, question. It says subject to the police powers. You're live on Eurofolk now. I'll give you what I yeah. think. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, thanks, Murray. Mute your microphone if you can, because okay. you're, you're echoing us back. We are now on uh, Global Voice Network, and we're also on Eurofolk Radio. And we're still waiting for Roger to show up, but we have Brent Winters here, and uh, the questions have already started, so let's get back to it. Take it away, Brent. Well, thank you, and thank you, Paul, for stepping in to help us out. We always like it when you, we think you're around. Well, um, the question was um, concerning the phrase of the Illinois Constitution. This is the state constitution that says that uh, the right to keep and bear arms is subject to the police powers of the state. Well, let's start with this. Is it? And I say yes to a degree. And that's different than the U.S. Constitution. The right to keep and bear arms and the right, a right, is a duty. It doesn't have a corresponding duty. You know, I've heard all my life, every right has a corresponding duty. That is not true. In this situation, and the use of the word right when it comes to fundamental rights, that old Germanic, that old Anglo-Dane word means, means duty. That's what it means. Right. You remember the words from the old German movies in World War II, and it was true, they were promoting the Third Reich. Those were all related words. They are the duties of the people. Our common law was called the Volk Reich. In all the Germanic tongues so, of the tribes of the... Of the Brent, you might, might want to hang on just a minute. Uh -huh. 
OK, um, I think I'm all right now. Thanks, Murr. Yeah, you're good. You're good. And, but and thank you, Murr, for yeah. alerting me to poll presence. All right. Well, um, the police powers, there are no police powers in the general government of Washington, D.C. Um, that uh, limit the right to keep and bear arms, except, watch me, <laughs> except on federal military bases and U.S. military bases, shipyards, federal prisons, and federal courthouses. In other words, what our law calls federal enclaves. The general government in Washington, D. has the police powers over that 10-square-mile area called District of Columbia and all the federal property that the federal government claims title to, that owns. Oh, yeah. They, have they got the police powers in the uh, national parks? Yeah, they do. They do. But they don't have them anywhere else. They don't have it anywhere within the boundaries of the state in which you live. Alabama, Montana, California, Washington, Idaho, Nebraska, Illinois, Ohio, Delaware, Maine, Florida, Georgia. None of those states do they have the police powers within the raw territorial boundaries of those states, but they do have it on their own property, yes. So the Second Amendment could be subject to it, but let's get back to the states. Only the states have police powers throughout the territory within their own boundaries. The federal government has no police powers. What are the police powers? Police. Uh, that's a word that comes from polis. It comes from you know, in the same root word, policy, police, polis, polite. There's another use of that root word, polite. What is a polite person? Well, a polite person, this is the fundamental meaning of the word, has always been for a few thousand years. A polite person is a cityfied person because the word polis means city. And cityfied persons are polite persons. They have entered into the mystery religion law and government of the, of the club, the fraternity, the secret society of the city. That's why Rome yet today talks about the mother church. Well, that phrase is analogous to the mother city of Rome. Metropolis, metropolis, mother city. And if you're in the womb of the mother city, that's where that all comes from. It is still true today, friends, neighbors, and kin. The city rules. The city rules the law of the city countries. And that's what is ruling our states and our government today. And the cities, uh, Chicago rules, Illinois for the first time, not too many years ago that happened. Every constitutional office in the state um, is held by someone from Chicago. The same problem is occurring in the state of New York. New York controls Chicago. The same problem is occurring in Texas, Houston, Dallas, and Fort Worth have become so large they control by sheer numbers. Even Nevada, friends, neighbors, and kin, is controlled now that Las Vegas is up to a few million people. When I was there 35 years ago, it was 750,000. That's a lot, but it wasn't like it is today. And most of them from New York City, by the way. New York and Los Angeles spilling over everywhere else. Same is true in, in Seattle and Washington. The city controls. And in the law of the city tradition, 
that tradition of religion, law, and government that covers every country on the globe, the, the territory about the city is under the long arm. Here, These are words and phrases from the law of the city. The long arm of the law from the city extends its terror. The extent of its terror is its territory, and that's where that word comes from. Territory means the area of land and people over which the city extends its terror. And remember, Rome extended its terror over all of the empire. It was ruled. It was the city that ruled the empire. Same was true of the empire of Babylon, the Ottoman Empire of the Asia Minor and the, the Egyptian Empire from the cities of Egypt, which they built, called treasure cities in the Bible, book of Exodus and Genesis, for that purpose. Well, it's all about the city, and that's what's killing us right now. And that was the great fear, fear of Tom Jefferson. That was the great fear of Daniel Webster and even Noah Webster, the man that helped us with the dictionary. These were no mere slouches. They understood the sweep and the flow of the history of mankind, and they saw that the great antagonism and the great battle was the law of the land versus the law of the city our common law versus the civil law, which is now expressed most pronouncedly in the canon civil laws of Rome and the Roman church, and every country in the world is under that code, the code of Justinian of the Roman Empire, except the five major common law countries and their former colonies. Of course, we fall into both of those categories, as does Australia and Canada. And New Zealand, former colonies of England, we're the only one, of course, that is fully independent from England. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're the only common law country in the world that exists in independence by battle. None of the other common law countries have done that. And some will argue that wasn't a smart thing. I, I think it probably was a smart thing because the truth is at this point, we are more English than the English. And I say that with all affection for the English and people like Paul who are here helping us and getting the word out. There are many people in England that feel that way too. They wish they were more of a common law country than they have come to be. They wish they had the grand jury back. They wish they had an independent judiciary. They wish they had the right to remain silent, the right to keep and bear arms in Australia and England and Canada. They've lost that to a great degree, and we haven't here. So in that sense, all of those, by the way, are common law, common law rights in the sense that the common law, our common law recognizes them, doesn't establish them, just like you don't, you don't make yourself a national. You are a national. You claim it. We didn't make ourselves a common law country in 1776. We were a common law country, and England the crown of England was denying us that and saying, no, 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 no. The king's king in England, but he's emperor in America. You know, the common law, the common, Blackstone said in his commentaries, the first volume, uh, our, our common law does not apply in our American plantations. That's a quote. Our common law does not apply in our American plantations, doesn't apply in our American colonies. This is the empire. That's why they... We're trying to use admiralty law, extend it. That's why they were trying to use the canon laws of the Church of Rome by extending them into these colonies, as our Declaration of 76 says, 
through the Quebec Act, which moved the boundaries of Quebec from Canada north of the Great Lakes down to the Ohio River. All of these things fostered. What did we want? Why did we separate? Because we wanted our, our fundamental responsibilities called rights. We wanted those to be enjoyed. We wanted to enjoy them. And the Crown of England said, you can't. And we went and ended up, ended up settling the question on fields of battle. And here we are. And we are, we are in the dominant position now as a common law country because it makes you wealthy, wealthier than any country in the world. How did this happen? It was a religious question, my friends. That's how it happened. We were a Christian and we were biblical and we were devoted to the Bible. And the Bible has had that kind of an influence on it. The laws of nature, unwritten. And the nature of creation, the lex non scripta, our common law, and the laws of nature's God written, lex scripta, the Bible, says Blackstone. And that's what's made all the difference in the world. Well, that's the long answer to that question. But the police powers, that's important to understand how our, our common law tradition played out in America. It played out in a big way with this understanding we have of the police powers. And here it is. I didn't even get to say, well, what are the police powers? The police powers are the authority of the sovereign to legislate concerning health, education, and welfare. Now, what you're hearing from me is what I learned when I took the bar exam. That's, that's the kind of stuff I had to learn. And it's true. They call it a bar exam where I, in my, in my state, there is no the bar doesn't control the practice of law, and I don't belong to it. I, they call it a bar exam because that's the convenient term. It was not a bar exam. It wasn't something that allowed me to join a bar. I've never belonged to a bar, for the, those of you that, oh, Winters is a bar member. And by the way, I looked the other day. You can go look and do your own research. I was fascinated to discover that only 14% of American lawyers belong to the American Bar Association, 14%. And I was also fascinated to discover that every office of the American Bar Association is held by a woman. And not only a woman, but a woman of color. Maybe that's why people don't join. They don't feel like they're welcome. I don't know. You know, there is racism in America, and it doesn't always go uh, white on black. And otherwise, it also goes black on white, as you well know. And it goes lesbian on straight. In other words, uh, <laughs> If you're not a sex pervert, you're in a in a vulnerable position these days. And by the way, just stating the facts, not making a statement of bigotry. If you're male and and uh, substantially white, whatever that means, as though any of us are pure bloods. But if you are those things, you're in a vulnerable position, and you could be persecuted. Well, and then of course people say, well, but. I saw, well, let me, I heard a, or read, no, did I read it or hear it? I heard about it and then I read it. Yeah, it was a debate. It was a debate and there was a, a woman of color. I don't like to say black because the friends I've had that are Christian men, some of them gone now, most notably E.B. Hill, a very well-known pastor of the, pastor of the First Missionary Baptist Church of South Central Los Angeles. He wasn't a friend as much as he was an acquaintance. I, I was honored to know him, but he wouldn't let anybody call him a black man. Wouldn't let him call him a black man. He was part German, that's true. Not much, but quite, oh, quite a bit. Like most American 
black men, they're part white. That's the fact of the matter. Not all of them, but I'd say, well, I read the statistics, most of them. But he didn't want to be called black. He'd say consistently, I'm a Negro man. And I don't like the word black. I was never called black growing up. I was called a Negro. That's what I am. You're a Caucasian. I said, I'm okay with that. And we, we ran with it. But it stuck with me because he was such a, well, E.V. Hill, was just such a, well, as far as men goes, I know we're all sinners, but he admitted it. I'll say that much for him. And uh, he admitted he was a sinner. That was one of his main things. And I don't like to use that word. I'm just telling you why I don't. But it was a, a woman of color. And then there was a, a lesbian and a, and a male. And all three of them were saying a male. The male was a sodomite. All three of them were saying in the debate that the Constitution of the United States is void for this reason. Because the Constitution of the United States does not contemplate, and the men that ratified it, that's the rank-and-file militiamen out there in the militia of the several states that ratified it, uh, didn't give any, any thought of sodomites, lesbians, and people of color. And that's not the intent of the document, therefore it is void. Well, is that true? Did the people that ratified the Constitution uh, have any intention that sodomites and lesbians would have any, any freedom to do what they wanted to do, in other words, be sex perverts, under the terms of the Constitution of the United States? And the answer is no, they didn't. Abuse of children, abuse of women, and all the things that go with homosexuality. By the way, homosexuality, the practice of it, is abuse of women, children, and men. That's what it is. Fundamentally, say it. Don't use those words. Don't be politically, that's polis, friends, politically correct. You talk about gays. There is no such thing. There's nothing gay about each other and children. And don't tell me that's not what they want to do. There are plenty of organizations out there that want to do that too. And well, they, they want to do it. And they say so. Others don't say it because they want to get away with it. Who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? Let's, let's quit sticking our heads in the sands. Now, that doesn't mean you say it every time you get a chance. You might get yourself thrown in jail at the wrong time. Oh, there's nothing wrong with be thrown, being thrown in jail, but it needs to be for the right time and for the right reason. You know, the Bible says you in this life, Jesus Christ said in this life, you will have trouble. And in this life, you will be hated. And the reason they're going to hate you is because they hate me. Well, he said that. But, but he says, be not dismayed, be not afraid, rejoice. Rejoice. Well, why, why do they hate you? Well, because uh, they hate Jesus Christ. That's why. That's what he said. Now, I can take somebody else's point of view on that, or I can take what he said. And what, the record of what he said is, is well-established, good evidence, by the way, better than, better than any other evidence you can find of any other writing in the history of the world. So I'm willing to go with that for a lot of reasons. But uh, you will be hated. But the Bible never says... Uh, try to make people hate you. That's not. It never says that. It just says you will be. So don't go out and make it worse. Be careful where and when you say what you're saying. I'm saying what I'm saying here on a public platform, and I've been given those that put this together. Men, I don't. I'm not even sure who puts it all together. I know Paul English is, has been key, and I know Roger 
is key. He initially got together with me and we did this. And for whatever reason, I'm given in our culture, I have jurisdiction to say what I'm saying here. And I say it. And for whatever reason, I feel, feel, no, I've thought it through. God wants me to say it here. So I say it today. I'm saying it. Tomorrow, I may not. I don't just say what I say everywhere at every point in time. Uh, be quick to hear and slow to speak. But for right now, this is a platform. We used to call it a pulpit. You know, in America, we have pulpits in Christianity. Other religions don't have pulpits. Why don't they have pulpits? Why don't they have that wooden desk where men proclaim, declare, oh, the word, uh, lay bare. I went through the Bible yesterday, and I said, how can I translate this Hebrew word? It's translated declare, say. I said, that's too weak for this Hebrew word. And I, 307 times that word appears in the Hebrew Older Testament. And I just started yesterday, yesterday going through the winterized version and changing every occurrence of it. And it fits grammatically better. So I know it's more accurate than what I had before. Declare is a good word. But this word means to lay bare. It means to lay bare. Exactly what it means. And I, why didn't I see that before? And I Went through all the uses. Of course, as I go through the uses of it, that's the way you determine the best, the, the fundamental definition. Why is it in Christianity we have pulpits and we have preachers? Why don't they have preachers in, in, the, in the Roman priesthood? You say, well, they do. No, no, not, not like they do in real Christianity, in real, true religion. Why don't they? Why don't they have them in Islam? Why don't they have them in Mormonism? Go to a Mormon church. They get up and drone on about something that doesn't amount to anything for a couple hours, have people stand up and talk. They don't have preachers. Well, why is it they don't have preachers? I'll tell you why they don't have preachers. Hindu doesn't have preachers. Hinduism, Buddhism, why don't they have preachers? The reason they don't have preachers is because they don't have good news. Good news. We call it the God spell. That's the old Anglo-Saxon word. The God spell. Spells an old word for words. News, words, things to say, good, Godspell, good, uh, short to gospel. Why don't they do that? They don't have any good news. The only news they have is bad news. <laughs> the devil's not stupid. He's going to soft pedal it. Maybe he'll accept it just like he did in the Garden of Eden, come in whispering through the tongue of a snake and whispering at you. No, but uh, the truth is something that men declare once they grasp it, the holy mackerel, and then they shout it. I'm reminded of. Billy Bray, Billy Bray of England. I think he was a Welshman. No, no, no. Billy Bray was a Cornishman. And he was uh, on the streets all the time, didn't have much money. And he was always preaching on the streets in London. And uh, Queen Vic, Victoria, kind of liked him. She'd see him and she asked somebody, said, who is that? No, that's Billy Bray. Well, who is he? Oh, he's just a poor fellow that preaches on the streets. We, you want us to shut him up? She said, no, I don't want you to shut him up. And they'd try to shut him up. And one time they said to him, the police, I guess, the Bobbies in London said, Bray, if you don't shut up, we're going we're gonna to pack you in a barrel and nail the lid down. He said, fine, go ahead. He said, if you do, I'll, I'll, I'll knock the bung out and scream through the hole. Won't make any difference to me. I'm going to shout it no matter what you say. He was the one that said, he was walking in London and he said, one time somebody asked him, Bray, why are you why are you so happy? He said, I don't know. He said, uh, I guess God's got a hold of me, but he said, every time I when I walk, I put one foot down, it says hallelujah. 
He said, I put the other foot down and it says, amen. And he said, then he said, and this goes on all day long. Now there are men like that. I don't feel like my personality is exactly like that, but Billy Braze was. And he was excited about the message he was talking about. Well, what is the gospel? By the way, everybody here is going to be, everybody listening to me, everybody, everybody is going to be judged according to God's great gospel. That's what it says in Romans, Paul writing to the Italian Christians and anybody else who happened to be in Rome. You're going to be judged by the great gospel. What is it? You know, they got in a fight about that a few centuries back. It went to national proportions. People went to, went to fighting over it and killing one another. Rome said the gospel is what the Pope says to do, and if you do what he says to do, you'll gain favor with God. And the Reformers said, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. The gospel is not doing what, the, what some leader of a pedophilia ring in Rome tells us to do, some Italian bishop. No, 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 no. The gospel is what God did and not what we do. He did it. Uh, and he says, if you will capitulate to this and just accept what I did, just say amen to it like Abraham did in Genesis chapter 15, 6, way back there in the very beginning. Just say amen. Here's what I'm, I've done for you. Say amen. You believe that? Amen. Oh, well, then God will count that to you for righteousness, and he will do away with all of your sin. That's it. Friends, neighbors, and kin, that's good news. And if you don't start with that, whatever else you do, you can talk politics from out of the cows come home. It's empty BS, empty bottom sediment. It'll come to nothing. It will ruin your life, ruin your family, ruin your time. Politics, remember, is from the word polis. I've spent, I spent five years in politics working like a Hebrew slave trying to get myself elected to office, spent over a million dollars of other people's money that they gave to me and wanted to get me into office. What happened in the end? I'll tell you what happened. A lady said to me the other day, hadn't seen her in years. She said, Brent, when you're watching all this stuff happen to Donald Trump and they're trying to prosecute him for something he didn't do about secret material and all that, he said, does that remind you of what happened to you? I said, well, I'm glad you said that, Nancy. See, I never thought about that. Yeah, it does remind me of what happened to me. Of course, it was a different issue. But that's all it comes to. That's all it comes to in the end. It comes to them having power because you entered their arena. Now, this whole thing about being a national is, a, and Roger and I have talked about this since for eight years now, probably. It's all about getting out of their arena. You, you are a national. You're an American. You're born here, or whatever the case. You're born on this land. It's all about the land in our common law tradition. It's the law of the land. You're born here. You're an American. That's it. And they're saying you ain't. They're saying you're a citizen under the 14th Amendment. By the way, citizen is a law of the city word. It's civis, civil. It's a word that means city. That's what it means. Like polis in the Greek, civis in Latin means city. Civilian. What's that? Well, that means you're under the law of the city. Uh, it's an unhappy circumstance that our Constitution of the United States uses that word. They use it because, I suppose, I'm thinking, why would they use that word? You know, our first fathers, the Puritans of New England, they didn't use that word. They used the word freeman. You're either a freeman or you're a slave. That's it. And they understood history enough to know that that's the only two op options you have. That's what Roger has said. You only have two political statuses. You've heard him say that. You're either a slave or you're a freeman. 
That's it. Well, they understood that, so they said, oh, well, we're freemen, and we intend to ruin, rule England from New England. That was their whole idea of coming here. It wasn't to just escape. No. <laughs> no. And that's your job, too. Listen, the Puritans of New England had it wired. What was the difference? Let's talk about this for a minute. What was the difference between uh, John Adams? I said Sam the other day, and somebody corrected me. I get, sorry, I misspoke. John Adams, second president of the United States, and Tom Jefferson. You know, they were friends after Jefferson's wife passed away. He kind of took on John Adams and his wife as mom and dad in some ways. They kind of hung around with them, stayed at their house, and Abigail, John's wife, kind of helped him along. He was having a hard time. And then when Jefferson tried to become president, they had a political, a political, yeah, political falling out because they had two different views of the world, and it came to a head. Well, what were their two different views of the world? Let me give this to you. This is fundamental to understanding our, our country. It's always the same. The, the fight in the world is always the same. It always goes to the two poles, and John Adams and Tom Jefferson are representative of what your fight is today. Did God use Tom Jefferson? Yes. But was Tom Jefferson right-headed? No, he wasn't. Did he do a good job of uh, getting the Declaration of 76 down? Yes. But was he right-headed? No. He, he was like Tom Paine. Tom Paine talked the talk, and he wrote common sense. And he, common sense was an argument from the Bible why we don't need a king. He knew his Bible, but he hated the Bible. He hated God, the Father, and he hated the Christ of God. He was a pagan par excellence. He died without a friend. People in America hated him. He was buried on a rainy day, and nobody came to his funeral because he was such a low pagan. Him and Tom Jefferson both supported the French Revolution. That's how wrongheaded they were. John Adams didn't. Who was the most popular? Tom Jefferson. Tom Jefferson was popular beyond belief. Possibly one of the most popular men in the world of his day. John Adams, he was unpopular. Why? He was rough. Why? He didn't talk about the possibilities of humanity. Why? Because that wasn't his culture. He was born into a Puritan world. He came from a Puritan family. He got into, he believed that man is not the answer to man's problems. That's what he was taught. That's what our forebears believed. They believed in freemanship. They didn't believe in being a citizen of the world. They didn't believe that <laughs> the logic is the answer to our problems, that reason analytic thought. That's all, that's all Tom Jefferson. Tom Jefferson went down that road and the last seven years of his life were miserable for him because in the last seven years of his life, from the year 1819 to 1826, he lived in confusion and he lived in hardship of mind because he finally was coming to grips with what Teddy Roosevelt came to grips with that man is not the answer to his problems because he couldn't fight off the evil he was seeing in humanity. Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt went through the same thing. Teddy Roosevelt, oh, he was so positive and young, and people put him in office. Oh, we, we, we're Americans. We can conquer the world, and everything was positive. And all he did was promote himself. He, paid, he was from a wealthy family. He paid thousands of dollars to have photographs taken of him looking this way, looking that way, writing about himself, talking about the possibilities of Americanism. Did God use him? Yes, God used him, but he was wrongheaded. 
And then when it came to World War I, as you know, he started the bull moose party, split the ticket, the Democrats got into office, and then the war started. And then he said, why aren't we in the war? Why don't we go to France? Are we a bunch of sissies and cowards? He said, well, who is he working for? The bankers, of course. Uh, Vanderbilt had an office right in the White House when Teddy was president. He dictated what Teddy would do. Oh, boy. The reality of the revision of history. Well, when it came to World War I, he was all for it. He was gung-ho. He was a hawk. And then his son went to World War I and was killed. And Teddy Roosevelt went in the morning, despair, depression, and never came out until he was dead. Listen, friends, we live in a cruel, hard world. And John Adams was right. Well, John Adams toyed with uniform uh, Unitarianism, which is, of course, a divergent from divergence from Christianity. I think he did that because, because he wanted to be accepted on the world scene. He never was. He was like Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia had one foot in Rome and the other foot in our common law trying to do the right thing. It doesn't work, friends. It does not work. If there's anything clear in the Bible, you got to get out of Babylon. Oh, he wanted John Adams wanted to be accepted by his colleagues, like Tom Jefferson. Come on, John. It didn't work. It didn't work for him. And I, it won't work for you either. And it won't work for me and all of us who have any humanists in us at all have tried that. Uh, Martin Luther tried that. I won't tell you the whole story, but when he got educated, he thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can have the respect of the evil empire. And he tried it. He tried it with, with the Jews of Germany. He tried it with Rome. Uh, and then they saw their opportunity, and boy, they went after him, both of them. Tried to use him and destroy him. Well, the same thing happened to, happened to John Adams, Justice Scalia. Friends, this is war. You can't play with the enemy. When you're in a war, you're in a war against evil that is all out and absolute. There is no room for compromise. Either you, either you serve Jesus Christ or you don't. And there is no neutrality. There is no tolerance acceptable. There is no um, being friendly with the enemy. Do not bid them Godspeed. It doesn't say you have to attack them. No, no, you don't attack them. What did Martin Luther say? Just, I'm not a Lutheran. I like to say that because I don't follow all their doctrines. But Luther was in that fight. What did he say there at the Diet of Worms after they hammered him? They, he was on trial for his life. And boy, they tried to intimidate him. They didn't give him a break. And finally, he said at the end, after he declared his position, he said, I'm my conscience is captive to the word of God. And to go against conscience when it's, it's right is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Now, I don't know if I got that quote exactly right. I might have added a word or two, but I got the amen right. Here I stand. I got that right. I can do no other. I got that right. Um, I used to know it in German, but I've never spoken German. But I wanted to really understand what he was saying. And he did not say that in a belligerent fashion like the movies say he said it. No, he said it. In a humble way, he knew that they had the, had the drop on him. They knew he, he knew he might not live long, and if he had not been kidnapped right after that, 
kidnapped by the elector of Saxony, he'd have been dead, probably, no doubt. And the elector of Saxony kidnapped and hit him while he put him in a castle, gave him a false identity, and told him he wanted him to translate the Bible into German, and he did, and that tells the story. And it's hap that has happened over and over and over. He tried to play footsie with him. There's no sense in doing it. More if there's anything I've learned as I've gotten older, you don't play footsie with them, then what do you do? You got to do what your captain tells you to do. What is your captain telling you to do? If you're not in the in his book and you're not reading his general orders and having them soaked in your mind, you're not going to do them, friends. That's the bottom line. Well, coming back to what Roger has been talking about all these years, Roger has got the idea, and I do, that uh, get out of her, my people. The Bible's clear on that. The last book of the Bible says that. Babylon is the system, the law of the city, the law of the city of Babylon, where the that law was first sophisticated according to the administrative dictates of the emperor, the first emperor of the world, Nimrod. What's an emperor? That means he's imperial. That's the Latin word for command. It's government by a single will, which is contrary to our common law tradition. And the city of Babylon, the scions of that city, Rome, Pergamos, uh, Nineveh, and then all the other cities of the world, even England, you see, even England, they, they tried it. They tried it. They were going to rule their, or England was going to rule her empire from a country called England. That was the same idea. And the empire was where the king, the crown, was emperor. <clears throat> He was king in England, but he was not, he was emperor in his empire, and he, had, he commanded the Indians, the Pakistanis, the people in Belize, Nevis, and all the other colonies of England throughout the world. And the saying when I was growing up, even in my lifetime, some of you remember this the sun never sets on the British Empire. And that empire, though, that empire dissolved for a lot of reasons. And America, of course, came out of that, and we're here. We're we're the light on the hill. This we're the we're the light on the hill of which our for Puritan forebears spoke, and we are the last hope of the world, and we are the strongest common law country in the world. And common law is, is a tradition of Christianity. It always has been, and it always will be. It has separation of powers. It recognizes the fundamental rights we've talked about. For example, our Bill of Rights, the English Bill of Rights in the, of the year, uh, I believe it was 1689. Same stuff. Magna Carta. By the way, I'm going to put a plug in here while I'm talking. Then I'll stop jabbering and see if there's another comment or just another question that somebody wants to raise. Uh, we're, we're, on, uh, we're teaching the four boxes of liberty now, the four boxes of freedom, the soapbox, the ballot box the jury box, and then the ammunition box. Those are symbols of, the, of four of our fundamental duties. We're, on, we're starting the last three sessions of that 12 series of 12 presentations that's coming up. You can join us. Go to commonlawyer.com. But then the next class that's in the hopper to teach, Sheriff Darleaf of Barry County, Mission, Michigan, is always has been, Nice enough, I say always, so far, I'd like to have him along. He's the co-presenter with me. He brings a point of view that's practical to what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a law sharp, so I'm reading the books and telling you what I find out, and what, the, what the way things ought to be in the law. And he brings in a point of view that is important because he's sheriff and has been for about 20 years. 
But the next class is Magna Carta, clause by clause and blow by blow. Don't miss it. I'm hoping Paul is listening. Paul, uh, if there's anybody in England that wants to listen to that, I want, I want them to listen. Uh, I want Brent. us all to get back in touch with our roots. Yes, go ahead. Um, Paul English ahead. is on. He is on the Jitsi board right now. Oh, well, I hope Paul's listening. He might be distracted doing something else, but uh, yeah. I know, well, I'll communicate Brent. with Paul. And we have listeners in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and I want them to, to hear it, too. Go ahead. Somebody spoke up. Yeah, yeah Brent, do you know why the sun never set on the uh, English Empire? British Empire, but tell me. Why, what, British, why didn't British I, Empire. I suppose because the world's turning. I don't know. Go ahead. Because God, yeah, go ahead. Because God didn't want to run around in the dark. Uh, <laughs> Well, now, you'd think, uh, living as long as I have, I'd have heard that, but no, I haven't. But uh, all of these things are mixed in. Eng England is a common law country, but the history of, the, of mankind is the history of the antagonism between the law of the land and the law of the city, and that antagonism has not been, in, has not been as intense anywhere in the world as it has on that little island in England. And the history of that island is the history of the battle between the law of the land and the law of the city at every point. And that is a religious war and a religious antagonism, as all war is, has to be, by definition, can't be anything else. But we see it clearly there. And the Reformation on the island of Britain was different than the Reformation of, uh, uh, on the uh, continent of Europe in this way. On the continent of Europe, the Reformation was of what folk called the church. But the Reformation on the island of Britain was not just of what folk called the church, the congregation of God's people. The Reformation of, in Britain was of church and government. Why? Because they lived in a common law world. And so that opportunity covered both. And even John Calvin in Geneva, the Reformation on the Continent, he was a lawyer of the law of the city, the most preeminent lawyer of the Roman law of his day, a, a trained Roman priest that had turned to Christianity, if the story is true, take it for what it says. And he couldn't understand why government was not working in Geneva the way he wanted it to, using just the Bible. Why? Because he had no nexus to attach it to practicality. And he was using the Bible by the methods and the course of process that he knew from the code of Justinian, of which he was the most foremost student of his day. You can't wed those two. No, there is the law. The law of the land comes in two volumes. The laws of nature unwritten in creation. The world around you reveals your maker, friends. Romans chapter 1, Genesis, 9, or Genesis, Psalm 19, the entirety of that psalm, divided into two parts, and it, it bespeaks the law of the land, unwritten in the nature of creation, and the law of the city. And in cases of possible or apparent disagreement between the two, there is no disagreement, but in cases where you can't tell or you're confused, the law written, is precise and governs in cases of apparent inconsistency between those two volumes, the first unwritten and the first written. 
Well, I'm going to stop. I, I thought of something else Brett, to say. I always do. It's like Link Salsi, but I'm going to stop and ask uh, Brett, for more comments. And, uh, of course, Brett. go ahead. Yes, um, Brett, this is Charlie in Colorado. Um, we've never spoken before. Um, I've been wanting to ask this question for, for probably over two and a half months. I respectfully asked it to, um, to Roger. And, and I respect his opinion, but I hold another opinion. And until I get um, information to prove my opinion uh, incorrect, um, it's regarding um, a court case that was from the 19, it was 1970. It's Brady versus United States, not the Brady in the, in the 80s. Let me just, and this is what the court stated. Waivers of constitutional rights not only must be voluntary, but must be knowing, intelligent acts done with sufficient awareness of relevant circumstances and likely consequences. On that um, term right there of uh, likely consequences, I'm reminded of the, um, the maxim, ignorance of a fact is an excuse, and it's grounds for um, at least recognizing the mistake and correcting that material fact. My question is, in this case where our conditions um, prior to understanding the, um, the bear trap of being a U.S. citizen, uh, we did not, um, knowing um, and with sufficient awareness, um, basically declare our condition correctly. So, again, Roger says there is no retro uh, correction. I think there is. I mean, I believe in repentance and, um, and, uh-huh. and correction. Well, retro, 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 retro correction of what? I missed that. Retro of, of a mistake. Of, a mistake of, of a fact? mistake. Right, correct. Uh, like a fact. Yeah. Okay, and what is the mistake of fact of which you, to which you refer? That we were clothed in a condition that we did not knowingly uh, conduct ourselves under an intelligent act with sufficient awareness. Well, put it more on the ground and tell me what you're talking about. Give me some facts. You're talking uh, in such generalities that I don't know what the, the, the issue is here. I, I, I apologize. That's I'm trying right. not no, to. No, you're doing good. Well, Go ahead. You're okay. doing good. Okay. Okay, because, again, the United States citizen, as we well know it, is a federal enclave within the exterior boundaries of whatever state, Michigan state. Okay, so under the condition of being a federalized person or citizen, we have unfortunately lost our way and we've lost our rights. And so if, again... I'll just use an example of traffic laws. That's malum um, prohibitum. Now, under if we had our our whole complete um, oneness of a right, those would not apply to a national. And I'm, and I'm not saying to go out there and do all sorts mm-hmm. of crazy things. I think I believe in personal responsibility. But if we are under a condition that we did not understand, we were not under that that those laws, that foreign nation, which is the United States. So if there was ignorance of a fact, would that not um, be applicable 
to a mistake? Let me ask this first. Are you married? Uh, not at the moment. Oh, you're not married, right? Correct. No, I, I didn't moment. hear you. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I want to get between you and your husband by answering anything. If he's, if you, yeah, I'm divorced. I don't know what he may have told you. You don't have a husband. That's okay. I don't have a husband. Correct. Um, that's important. Yeah, that's good. Good. Okay. So I'm going to move ahead there. You said a while ago, I think I heard you say this. You said that um, the states are federal enclaves. Did I hear that right? Correct. That is not true. No, the states are not federal enclaves. The, the federal government, the general government in Washington, D.C., has no police powers within the territorial boundaries of the states of the United States because the states have those police powers there. Federal enclaves are federally owned property, property that the general government in Washington, D.C. has title to. For example, military bases, shipyards, uh, army bases, that's what I mean when I say military bases, shipyards, federal courthouses, post office property, uh, any other building that they own or have jurisdiction over or rights to for any period of time. They lease, they lease property, for instance, for, uh, for offices of the federal government sometimes, those are federal enclaves within the boundaries of the states. But within the states themselves, they have no uh, federal uh, authority, uh, police power authority, I should say. So I, I just wanted to catch that. And you said also, you said also that our rights, we've lost our rights again. It's a matter of the way you talk. Don't say that because it's not true. It is utterly impossible that you could lose a responsibility that God has put straight on your head without any intermediary between you. Um, and our fundamental rights, we call them fundamental. That's just a word we use to describe the responsibilities that God has put upon us as individuals, as individuals without any intermediary between us. And we call those fundamental rights. And we can find an example, examples of those in the Bill of Rights. That's not all of them. That's just some that we thought were uh, worthy of mention by, we say, constitutional protection. Remember, the Constitution says that the mention of these rights uh, doesn't disparage any other fundamental rights, I'm paraphrasing, that we may have that, are not, that this Bill of Rights does not mention. Uh, and the, our Supreme Court of the United States and our other federal courts have recognized other fundamental responsibilities that God has given us that our Constitution doesn't mention. But I'm looking here. Let's get back to Brady versus the United States. Let me read this again. And this is kind of the rule. Waivers of constitutional rights. Number one, the Court of the United States, in this case, has poorly stated this. I don't know who wrote it. I'd have to look here a little closer. But has poorly stated this. The Supreme, yes, but which one of the justices? I don't know which justice wrote it, but I'm saying this. The courts, are, the courts are often very careful to not say constitutional rights because there is no such thing. There is no such thing. The courts often say and should always say constitutionally protected rights. Absolutely. They're not rights that you. the Constitution gives you. you and, I, I, and I'm preaching to the choir, and I know I'm preaching to you, but I'm, I'm saying to you. Absolutely. You, I agree. And all of us to remind us, let's talk. Let's talk. 
I, I, I'm preaching to the choir, I know. But let's say it correctly and not get sucked in to saying they've taken our rights. They haven't. That's impossible. The Declaration of 76 even says that, using the word inalienable, unalienable, whichever version you want to use. By the way, it doesn't mean primarily you can't put a lien on it. No, this word is the word alien. Alien means separation. It's a, a Latin word. Uh, you, you can't be separated from the responsibilities that God has given you. You couldn't get rid of them if you wanted to. That's like being a father or a mother. You can't get rid of that responsibility. You can't say, I'm tired, I'm fed up, I'm moving on. Uh, don't tell me if you're a father or mother, you haven't said that at some point. <laughs> but you can't get rid of that, friends. It, it just is. And, there, and also with your fundamental rights that God has given you, your responsibilities to make choices. You can't get rid of those either. So let me read the rest of this. What's your first name again? I'm, I apologize. I didn't catch I'm, it. I'm, what is it? I'm Charlie. And, and oh, I, Charlie, I totally, Charlie. It threw me. Yeah. Yeah, it threw me. It threw me at first. Because I, it threw me at first. But let me read this before you speak, and then you can speak. Here we go. Waivers of constitutional rights not only must be voluntary, but must be knowing. Intelligent acts done with sufficient awareness of the relevant circumstances and likely consequences. You read that while ago. It bears reading again. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Okay. As far as the condition of rights, I totally agree with you that the blessing of the rights came from my creation, from the creator. Those are internal. Okay. On the external, I, I will use draconian circumstances um, relevant to some of the conditions today. That's all I was saying. It more uh, is more akin to um, uh, the existence of one um, in the condition of a serf or indentured. That's all I'm saying is, you know, when I say we don't have rights, we don't, in my opinion, it's very difficult to exercise in this environment today, Brett. And I was not trying to say that I did not recognize the gift that was given to me. Would it be you don't need to justify yourself because I know you weren't saying that. I know you didn't mean that, but all, we all speak that way. My only point is let's try to discipline ourselves to not say things that play into their hands when we know better. That's what I'm trying to say. Somebody else chimed in. Go ahead. Would it be more clear to Go ahead. Um, for her to say that uh, you're, you're trying to argue against the method that they use to enslave us, correct? Correct. Yeah, no. you're, you're, you're trying to invalidate yeah, well, that. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, ba basically she's saying uh, she's found uh, a, yeah, a, she said, she said a that. beautiful ruling yeah. that says that what they did was wrong and and convince and tricking us to become serfs or you know citizens. Brett. Yeah, that, no, that's right. That's right. It's it's a it's a eating away at our foundations one at a time, and not taking our responsibilities, which are our rights, but taking away our enjoyment. And that's the way the courts put it, and that's the way we should put it. Brett, if I may chime in real ahead. quick, one more time, because it this goes right to the heart of how you started the show 
um, that we were always a national. And it's interesting when I did, I did my passport um, in 2019 with an explanatory statement. I was, I was exceptionally delighted the way I carried that process out. But when I saw Roger's affidavit about six months ago, like he would use the term, it was seductively simple. Okay, I changed a few things, but I want to share this again with everyone. What I put in there was that I declared and proclaimed my intent to continue to be a national. So, guys, please, um, you were always a national. I yield. Uh, Can I wait here for a second? Well, that was was a good thing to say. Go ahead. Can I wait in here for just a second? Merkel, I'll get you in just a moment. Um, I think the crux of what what Charlie was asking was, if there is a contract or an agreement that is entered into by two people, and one person knows all of the facts, implications, and pitfalls of that contract, of that agreement, but the other one does not, that disclosure is not made of the gravity and depth of how that contract could negatively impact one of the parties, could that contract be de- be declared null and void and basically any performance that had been done under that contract to that time, could that be undone? Could it be unwound? And in, and in contract law, that's called mutual mistake of fact. Let me read this case, a a synopsis of what this case says, uh, what happened, the facts of this case called, it was the Brady case. Defendant was charged with kidnapping in violation of 18 blah, blah, blah. Since the victim have not been liberated unarmed, defendant faced a maximum penalty of death under the statute. Is that a, is that a, is that cruel and unusual to, to have somebody executed for kidnapping? And the answer is no. That's what the Bible requires for kidnapping. Kidnapping is a capital crime. Well, let's keep going. Uh, death under the statute if the jury should so recommend. Defendant pled guilty after learning that his co-defendant would plead guilty and be available to testify against him. Defendant subsequently sought post-conviction relief under or pursuant to 28 U.S.C. blah, 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 upon the claim that his plea was not voluntary, not voluntarily given, because 18 U.S.C. operated to coerce his plea Defendant's argument was based on a later decision which found the death penalty provision of Section 1201 to be unconstitutional because the inevitable effect of that specific provision was said to needlessly encourage pleas of guilty and waivers of jury trial. However, the decision did not rule that all pleas of guilty encouraged by the fear of possible death sentence were involuntary or invalid. On appeal, the Court of Appeals affirmed the denial of the defendant's requested relief under 28 U.S.C. Upon the finding that the defendant's plea had been voluntarily and knowingly made, the case was appealed to the United States Supreme Court. And here's the question. If you can't boil it down to the right question, you'll never get the right answer. And every time somebody files an appeal in the appellate courts of our country, from the state appellate courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, the courts require them to boil it down to a single, simple question, or they're not going to even hear the case. And here's the question that was presented to the United States Supreme Court. Here it is. Was the denial of post-conviction relief to a defendant who had pled guilty to avoid the death penalty proper? And the answer is yes. 
And then they go on to explain why. But the statements they make here are the opinion of the court. And the opinion of the court is, as we'd read up here, let's get the big point. Uh, there, and uh, Charlie made the point here. Charlie said, uh, if there's a mistake of fact and you don't understand and you thought it was one thing and not another, well, then the waiver may not be valid. Now, here's an important distinction to make in those cases. And every law sharp that goes into court will probably think this way, at least he ought to. Uh, there's a difference between mistakes of law and mistakes of fact. Mistakes of law, mistakes of fact, you know, we're not to know. The law doesn't require us to know every fact. We try to, but we don't. But the law does uh, presume that we know the law. And ignorance of the law, we say, is what? No excuse. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, but what about ignorance of fact? Well, what's the difference? Well, the law says, thou shalt not covet, lie, steal, commit adultery, or murder your neighbor. Well, that's law. That's the outcome that our maker demands. And if we ever get to the point that we're using the law unlawfully, as Paul says, and we're allowing coveting, lying, stealing, committing adultery and murder, and when we go through all the process, well, there's something wrong. We're missing something. Let's back up and do it again. <laughs> but God has that jurisdiction. That's law. What jurisdiction do we have? Well, what do we give the, the jury jurisdiction to do? We give the jury jurisdiction to decide the facts. By the way, that's only in common law countries. The rest of the world doesn't have a jury that is the court of last resort as to the facts and the law, I might add. They don't even have that. We have that, and we give it to the jury, and they decide the facts. And the judge is to instruct them on the law, and the judge is to decide the law. That's what our common law says. But even though the judge is to decide the law, the jury still has the authority to disagree and bring a verdict in, in the teeth, I'm quoting Justice Holmes of the U.S. Supreme Court, to bring in their verdict in the teeth, the teeth of both the law and the facts. That's a lot of power. That's the most powerful power known among humanity down here on land. Subject, of course, to the, the objective and outside force of the Court of Last Resort, our, our Declaration of 76 says, the supreme judge of all the world. That's his jurisdiction. But down here on land, we allow people to do that. Well, I guess really what I'm stressing here, okay, all these things we're saying is true, but we're just talking all wrong. And that's where we started today, and that's where we still are. We're talking all wrong. Why are we talking all wrong? Because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We only hear people who talk wrong. And so we talk like they talk. If you want to talk right and you want to communicate to other people what is right and you don't want to give an opening to the devil himself and his useful idiots, you got to be talking right, friends, if there's anything I've learned in court. You give a wrong-headed judge one opening and say the wrong thing. He wants to rule against you. He'll grab it and run like mad through that opening, like a running back who sees daylight and he sees it for a second. If he's good, he's through that daylight and down to the goal line. And that's what the courts will do. And the only way to talk right is to be habituated to it. And the only way to be habituated to it is to have your head buried in God's book, saturated with his thoughts, his sentences.
There is no other way. I've tried it all up to this point. I'm giving you a personal testimony. What's a personal testimony? That's evidence. I'm telling you the evidence of what I've learned, I have a what I know to be true. There is no other way. Get out, get out of Babylon and get your head buried in the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God and whoever tried to speak, I yield and you go ahead and talk. Yeah, Brent, so, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So relevant to, you know, the Bible. Yeah, and go ahead. All go ahead. So there's a gentleman that this is how I was originally exposed to all this stuff. So six years ago, I met a gentleman local to my state and he dumped all this on me and I had no idea what he was talking about. Well, I followed up with him after not speaking to him in six years. And one of the things that he mentioned when we were talking on the phone was, uh, you know, he's he, I guess he has the ability, you know, uh, when he's protecting himself as a as a national non-citizen and and he accumulates property that, um, under uh, a patent law, he, he uses the Bible as one of his core, um, you know, references. And uh, he didn't say how, but he said, you know, he quotes the Bible and it trips up the courts every time. What's, what's well, um, I would have to see the record of the court. I would have to see the record of the court to believe that. And mm -hmm. my presumption is it's not true. I've okay. been in courts enough to watch how, what happens in those situations. And you said, you said yourself, for instance, uh, I forget how you put it. Uh, it was, it was weak. You said, well, I believe, or I, I think, or I suppose, or something. I don't know what it was, mm -hmm. but I've heard those stories all my life. And I have come never to believe them until I see the court record that proves it's true. And I have never seen that court record. What I'm saying to you is this, your responsibility to do right never changes. And no man has a right to do wrong, period. That means you must do right no matter what. And it doesn't make any difference what the government does, what the courts do, what, your, your, what force they bring against you. But the question then becomes, on what hill are you willing to die? Because there's so much evil out there, you can't fight all the battles, my friend. You're mortal. So you must pick which hill you're willing to die on, because if you're not willing to die for something, life's not worth living. Uh, there's got to be something out there that's greater than you, that's more important than you, that you are committed to, that you're willing to die for. Are you willing to die for, and go to jail, lose your life, liberty, property, a combination thereof. Are you willing to do that because you don't want to get a driver's license? I'm just throwing out the question. There's some people that are willing to die on that hill. I don't think that's the controlling hill, friends, myself. What you should be willing to die for is the issue that controls everything. Find, be brief, be pointed, let your matter stand, lucid in order, solid and at hand. Spend not your words on trifles, but condense. Strike with massive thoughts, not drops of sense. Press to the close with vigor once begun and leave hard the task, leave off when done. And he who draws a labored length of reasoning out puts straws in lines for winds to whirl about. And he who tells a tedious tale of learning o'er counts but sands on ocean's boundless shore. Victory, if gained, is gained by battles fought, not by the numbers, but by the forces brought. What boots success in skirmish or in fray, in rout or ruin, following close the day? What worth a hundred posts all maintained the skill, if these all held? The foe is victor still. 
He who would win his cause with power must frame points of support and press forward with steady aim. Attack their weak points. Defend your strong with art. But here it is. Strike but few blows, but strike them to the heart. All scattered fires, but end in smoke and noise, the scorn of men and the idle play of boys. Everything you do, friends, everything you do with these wrongs that are out here, use them to support the battle you're fighting on the hill you're willing to die for. Don't use them as the hill you're willing to, to die for. Are they all important? Yes, they're all important. I've often wondered, my father was in World War II, and uh, he was a 17-year-old kid. They grabbed him up out of the creek bottom and threw him to the other side of the world with a bunch of other boys that were about that age, threw him to the other side of the world to face an enemy that came forth like demons from hell. And that's not an exaggeration. Like demons from hell. And I've often wondered, of all of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives that Americans paid in the war against the Japs, why didn't they just bypass a lot of those islands and go straight for the jugular? Now, I'm not a, I'm, I wasn't a guy in charge, and it's easy for me to sit here decades later and, and say and, and, may, and ask that question. But I use that as an example in my own head. Uh, what worth 100 posts, all maintained with skill, if these all held the foes, Victor, still? All these little outposts, and you're capturing them and paying blood and money to get them, and then you, you move the next one. Well, it probably was good, but was it worth it to do it that way? Or was there a better way? Why not go straight and drive the stake straight into the heart of the madness and kill it? Listen, I, I had a dog once. I'll tell this story just to make the point. I had a dog. I heard when we'd hear the dogs barking, if we could hear them, we knew they had something treed or something cornered, and we'd run watch. And one time we heard the dogs barking down the hill toward the creek, and we ran, my brother and I ran down the hill, and there our dogs, two or three of them, had this groundhog surrounded right down in the creek bottom, and the field had just been planted, and the beans were up about three or four inches, and here this groundhog was trapped out in the middle of this open field. And we saw them out there, and we ran, and we just watched. And those dogs was all around it. And uh, barking, 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 of course, that groundhog. The groundhogs are vicious. I mean, now they put do some damage on a dog. They don't mess around. But all of a sudden, old Frisk, Lade was too slow. She was too, too old. They were border collies. And old Frisk, when, when that groundhog turned toward uh, Lade, because Lade was nipping at, at the groundhog's tail, old Frisk shot in like a shot and had that groundhog by the back of the neck the nap of the neck right there in the back and shook it. And it was a big critter. Blame near as big as, as uh, Frisk. We called her Frisk. Her name was Frisky. We called her old Frisk. And she shook him to death. I don't know how a dog knows what will kill a groundhog. But she knew to go straight to the back of the neck and kill it. And she did. Now, I suppose if she had got a hold of the groundhog's throat, the critter had scratched, <laughs> scratched her to death or bit her to death and just scraped her face up real bad. She was smart. And we don't, we're not to attack. You know, Jesus Christ said this. I said a while ago, don't attack, stand fast. That's true. On all of these questions, stand fast. Jesus Christ said, do not square off with the evil man, the evil man, the evil one. Do not square off with him. 
That's in the Sermon on the Mount. The translation says, do not resist evil. That's poor translation. I think that's King James. Oh, it's not as good as it could be. I don't want to be overly, overly critical. I know those fellows worked hard, but I got to say, that's not it. That word does not mean do not resist. It means do not square off with. There's other ways to deal with the evil one. You're not, not, you're not up to squaring off with him. And he's got his useful idiots out here. And he's pretty wise, pretty wily, as the old, old Bible puts it. Wily, W-I-L-E. Is it L-E-Y or L-Y? I'll let you look it up. But he's wily. Talks about the wiles of the devil. And uh, what Jesus Christ wants us to do is to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He tells us that. And that's, that's consistent with what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not draw land, a line in the sand and square off with these guys. They got the drop on you. They got the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the FBI, CIA, ATF. And if you're in North America, they'll even bring the what they call the RCMP down on you if they can figure out how to figure that in. I've seen that happen. The RCMP, you know what that is, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Anything they can bring to bear on you. And they're, they're drawing their forces together. They're trying to intertwine the states so the feds have control of all of them. It's our duty to resist, to stand fast, to say no, no, no. What juries do in America? How did prohibition stop? Uh, that prohibition was an attempt of men to declare what was unlawful and what wasn't in the outcome as a matter of law. Men don't have that jurisdiction. Oh, it's against the law to manufacture, sell, transport alcoholic beverages. God never said that in the Bible. Is it dangerous? Is it ugly? Is alcoholism destructive and, and death? Yes. But the Bible says it doesn't rise to a crime. We're not going to declare or God doesn't declare it that way. And if men do, what do they get out of it? What do we get out of it? We, we got all these bureaucracies out of it, all of the federal police forces. Well, they don't have any police power in the states. Where in the Constitution does it say we can have an FBI, a CIA, an ATF, an IRS, all that stuff? Never. There's no jurisdiction for that, and it's not granted to the general government in Washington, D.C. That came because we as a people, using silly Christian folk, silly, effeminate, why? Just following the gals who hate men that drink. Uh, read the history of uh, prohibition in America, how it arose, the temperance movement, where it came from. It came from the ladies' aid societies in the churches. That's where it came from. Well, I understand they were upset about it. I understand that drunk men, drunk husbands are dangerous and all the things. Still, when you go where God doesn't give you jurisdiction to go, you're going to get something worse. Don't do that. Well, at any rate, how did it stop? It stopped by people on juries, grand juries and trial juries. Did it stop because we took up arms? No, it stopped because they just stood fast and said no. They said, no, Mr. Government, you may not prosecute this man for transporting liquor. No, Mr. Government, you may not take this man's life, liberty, property, or a combination thereof for transporting liquor. And that happened all over the country. Increasingly, the juries, grand juries and pettit juries said no, 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 and Finally, it became such an embarrassment that the move was on from the government inciting the, re the appeal of prohibition. But the damage, see, is still done. and we're The devil's not stupid. He gave us all these things because we were stupid, and the men in the churches were willing to follow the women. That's what happened. Period. That's the facts of the matter. You're talking about facts? That's the facts. Go read it yourself. There was a woman out in Kansas. Kiowa, Kansas. What was her name? Carrie Nations. 
a, a big woman, broad shouldered, six foot tall, going around the, in the cow towns along the rail, the rail lines with the railheads driving up from Texas. The old cow towns, of course, the railroads uh, had uh, connected a lot of other things, but she's going through those cow towns with a billiard, a bag of billiard balls, and she uh, had a hatchet in the other hand, and she'd throw billiard balls through the windows of taverns and bars in these little towns around Kiowa, Kansas, and then go into the bar after busting out the windows and take a hatchet, hatchet and start busting up the bar. That's how it all started in a meaningful way in America. Why is it that evil always wants to break glass? Well, I don't know, but that's the hallmark of evil. Bust out the windows. Have you noticed? It's been yeah. true since the days of, well, you see it in Germany when they went through all that in America. It's always a matter of busting out windows because it is a cowardly act of destruction of property. Uh, and again, I understand the evils of alcohol. I can go to the Bible and show you the dangers of it, and what the Bible says about it. But never does it say that in God's mind, it's against the law. It's against the law to abuse it, yes, but not to transport it, produce it, and drink it. Anyway... Those are some of the examples I use. What am I saying? What I'm saying is this. What is, you've got to answer this question, friends, neighbors, and kin, individually. What is the hill you're willing to die on? And everything that is wrong that is happening as a Christian man or woman, you should be obsessed and hateful and abhorred, ab abhorrent. It should be abhorrent to you. Sin. What is sin? Violation of God's law. We see it. What is his law? It comes to us in two volumes. You want to read about those two volumes? Go to Psalm chapter 19, maybe that's for you for next week. Read Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19 says this. It says there are two volumes, and it talks about them. David writing, David, king of Israel. That psalm is a short psalm divided into two parts. The first part talks about God's revelation of his will in the heavenly body, his nature, creation, and how the heavenly bodies do exactly what he tells them to do. You can predict exactly everything, the position of everything in the heavens, into infinity, because the movements of the heavenly bodies never change. Once you get them mapped out, and it can take a long time to do that, but we can do that, of course. We've been doing it for centuries. Well, that's the first half. The second half, that's the, the, the law of God, lex non scripta, as Black the law of God well, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish this. Describing this psalm, then you can ask the question. Just one well, moment. We Thank also you. have Mirka. The she second wanted half of to the jump psalm in. Is about, is about, that's we all right. The second half of the psalm. Thank you. The second half of the psalm is about the law of God written. The law of God unwritten, the law of God written. But the first half of the psalm. Though, although it's talking about the law of God in nature, uses literary terms in the Hebrew the second half of the psalm talks about the law of God written, the Bible, and uses astronomical terms to describe those. It's beautifully written. That's why I recommend reading it. Who's first? Somebody, Paul, were you telling me who asked first? I don't yeah. want to get it out of order. Mer here. Was Merca first or second? Yeah, Merca has been waiting for about 20 minutes. Devin, if you can hang on just a second. Yeah, Merca, yeah, okay, you. Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. Jump Paul. on in. Go ahead. Where did she go? She was on the board. She disappeared. <laughs> Come oh, on. Okay. Well, my, my well, question no. Merca is, Merca has never. Sorry, I got kicked. I got dropped go. okay. by Ditsy. 
Um, Brent, I have a question. Um, so going back to what Charlie and Paul were talking about, we are nationals. And my question was, because of the presumption of the federal, I mean, the U.S. corporation, um, they assume that we are citizens because of the 14th Amendment. So as a national, you know, after affirming or even before affirming our national status with the Secretary of State, would anything that happens if, like, we got a traffic ticket or if we got a situation that we're dealing with that is tr we're, they're trying to send to court, would that be retroactive as a national? I think Roger's position on that is that, no, you shouldn't be held to the fire on that, but good luck finding a court that's going to agree with you. Right. And there, I, I've heard that there's an Article Three judge that is educated on private citizen matters and court cases or, you know, whatever you want to call it. So would that would be the best would that be the best um, outcome for us to go to an Article Three judge, and if we do find the information that can be retroactive, and use it for our, you know, for our defense, it it could be retroactive, right, Brent? Well. It, oh, sure. A court will do whatever they want to do. They'll do whatever they want to do. It's up to the American folk that go into court to make the arguments that they believe are what the law says. I've seen a lot of, well, every time something goes to court, every time something goes to the appellate courts even, there are people that are disagreeing and disagreeing with the courts below. That's why it goes to appellate court. They disagree with the courts below. And how do you gain the ascendancy? The ACLU, friends, neighbors, and kin, went into court for decades, and the courts never listened to them. They just kept throwing them out, throwing them out, throwing them out, throwing out their arguments. And they just kept at it and at it and at it. And through persistence, the courts began to agree with them. The tide began to turn in their favor on things that uh, were wrong. Different what your point of view is. One thing I've learned about politics, the things that are rejected as asinine and left-wing wacko, left-wing, no, not left-wing, our conspiracy, nutty people, what they're saying, in 20 years will be mainstream. Now, that's not an exaggeration. I remember when I was deeply involved in politics, and we were talking about the Second Amendment, and that was 30 years ago. Uh, people, nobody ever said 30 years ago that I ever heard in politics that firearms are for use against the government. Nobody would dare say that. I remember George Bush said, I'm, I, I'm not going to tolerate people calling the uh, ATF and the CIA and the FBI jackbooted thugs. Well, people say that now, and nobody complains because it's become so abundantly apparent. And what was anathema to set, be said in politics 30 years ago is now what folks are saying consistently. And the same thing is true about the Second Amendment. So... What you're saying, don't think you've got to have results right away. That's not the way our common law tradition works. The law of the city works like this. The, the powerful party says this is the way it is, and then they use force and threat of force to make everybody agree with them and say 
the politically correct thing. Yes, there is a COVID virus, and yes, I got to put a diaper on my head. And yes, they are gay, and they got us all saying it. Don't say it. They, they, they do that by force and threat of force and intimidation, etc. The common law tradition is different. It's slow and sure-footed. In the law of the city tradition, everything is it is forced fast, and that's why they have continued. In the law of city tradition, it's a continual revolving of revolution, a revolving revolution, and that's what they call it: revolution, coup, revolution, assassination, round and round. The madness and the bloodshed goes, and the weak man with the sponge follows up uh, with a strong man with the knife, and it never stops. In our common law tradition, it's slow and sure-footed. We just keep saying the truth. In our common law tradition, the people that are right-headed are the pilot light, friends. Remember the pilot light on the old gas stove? The pilot light, light never went out. And then when you'd turn that little, that little filament on, click, or you'd take a match. We used to take a match. You'd light that light. We had, <laughs> we had gas from the oil field where I lived. People turned their, we just free, right out of the oil wells. You know, it wasn't all that clean, but it was free. And you just light it. But that pilot light would stay on all the time. The steady glow of truth are the right-headed people. The, the fires and the raging and the revolution, the, all that, coming up and down, boiling, popping the lid off, boiling over, going down, that's not us. No, we are the steady glow of the pilot light of truth. And that pilot light will catch hold at different times and keep truth alive. Don't think that there's some white hats that are going to come in and change everything. It ain't going to happen. No, no. It's you, not them. You are the pilot light of truth. Do you really know the truth? How deep is your conviction of the truth? It can't be that deep unless it's put down in sod that will receive it. And it's the true truth. It's the pure truth of the laws of nature and the laws of nature's God. That's what we're out to get. That's what I can't tell you what to believe, but I can encourage you and tell you the good news. You can enjoy the truth. And doing it, if you have conviction to do it. We used to watch people. Throughout another example, these are just all examples. I, back in about 1980, we determined we were going to keep all of our children out of the government fool system, the government fool system, and homeschool our children. We had a pile of children, and we just kept them all at home. We told them to read. We worried about some of them. We didn't know what we were doing. There was a big movement on to do that, and people threatened. And it got crazy, but we got through it. And what we discovered during that time, that there were a lot of people that had what we call, they had what we called preferences. They would start homeschooling their children, pull them out of the public schools. They tried for a year or two, and then one would go back to public school, and then two, and then they'd put them in a Christian school, which is an institutionalization also, because it's just fashion after the public school, and there's a lot of political correctness there and all that. But they'd keep doing those things, and we noticed that there's a difference at that time. I noticed there's a difference between a conviction and a preference, and a preference can be very strong. So strong, you think it's a conviction, but it's not. How do you know it's not a conviction? I'm quoting the Supreme Court on this. Supreme Court of the United States had to wrestle with that problem, and they got it right. They got it right. What is a conviction? A conviction is something you have that is part of your character. Caricature, that means it's pounded into steel, like they used to stamp coins. It's an old Greek word from the Roman Greek-Roman days that talked about taking a a hammer and a stamp and whack and you hit it and it puts it in metal and it doesn't rub out. Everybody's got character. 
It's either good or bad or good and bad, but everybody's got character. Those things that will not change no matter what. Oh, what good character you have that will not change no matter what. And if it will change, oh, they'll threaten you with jail and then your character, then it changes. Well, that's not character. That's not caricature. That's not conviction. That's just a preference because they threaten to throw you in jail. They threaten to throw your wife in jail. They threaten to throw your kids in jail. All of those things are happening all around us. How do I know? Because I deal with that kind of stuff. That's what I hear about. People call me. They tell me their stories. I've been through it myself. They're after your family. They're after after your wife, trying to split up your, destroying you. It's, un, it's unbearable almost what's going on out there. But what is it? that you have in you that won't change that God wants in you that he has revealed to you through his law, his law, his will, the will of the sovereign. What's in you that won't change? Is there anything? No matter what. That's what will make the difference, friends. And don't look for the results. The results are not your business. Oh, I want to have this and I want to change that. And I want my, that's not your jurisdiction. What's your jurisdiction? Remember, only God can declare the outcome. What is a crime and what isn't? And he's done so. And we go outside that. Our jurisdiction is due process. What is due process? Our common law. The way we go about doing things. The course of our life. The course that we demand when we go into court. Right to trial by jury. What's a jury? Has to be impaneled on the spot. The trial begins right then. If you don't do it that way, it's not according to the course of the common law, all those things, the militia, the four militia clauses of our constitution. Those are all part of our, what we used to call our English constitution, our common law. Well, where is your conviction? At what point do you draw the line? I would suggest to you, I would suggest to you that you should have this conviction. Number one, that the Bible is good evidence of the will of God. What is the will of God? It is the will of the sovereign and that is law. And where the Bible speaks, and you to you, and you can see that it's unambiguous and it's sure, and there's no question, you've got the interpretation of that one down. That's clear as crystal flat, tells it just the way it is. You should lie. Can you do that? We can't do it if you don't know what it says. I mean, where do we start here, friends? How many people will pound the Bible and talk about the common law? I was talking to a fellow the other day. The laws of nature, unwritten, our common law. And he was saying, we've got to get back to the common law, and we think the Great Reset is going to do that. And I said to him, and kindly, because he was a friend, I said, I want you to give me your two-sentence or less definition of the common law. Oh, he said some things, but it didn't even come close. He doesn't know what the common law is. He has this idea that there is such a thing, of course, because God has given him that. Well, there is such a thing, but what is it? Do you know? Can you say it in two sentences or less? Uh, the Bible, can you say it in two sentences or less? What is the written revelation of God's will? Is your commitment to that written revelation the Bible itself? Because that's the final rule in cases of apparent inconsonance between the two. And then secondly, to be committed to the, to the laws of nature, unwritten. You can't do that, friends. I'm just trying to, I guess I'm trying to get to the bottom line. People ask specific questions. The only way to learn that is to hear it taught, read it yourself, wrestle with it. And you have to be doing that to really get any good out of it every day, just like brushing your teeth. You know, the Bible says, for instance, it is the washing of the water of the word, the washing of the water of the word that makes life tolerable. Well, how often do you take a bath? How often do you take a shower? 
uh, well, my, when I was growing up, people didn't take showers and baths every day because we didn't. <laughs> people took a sponge bath every day. I'll say that. They tried to be clean. <laughs> in the summertime, you go swimming in the pond. You can do it that way. But the point I'm making is you do it every day. You brush your teeth every day. Well, the same thing's true by analogy with the Word of God. If you're not in it every day, God's not going to work his effect on you of giving you the character that he wants to give you so that you can enjoy these responsibilities. You cannot enjoy these responsibilities. There's a fella, the first president of one of the land-grant agricultural schools here in America. You know, you got A&M, that was a Texas land-grant. Then you got the University of Missouri, that was a land-grant. And then the University of Illinois, University of Iowa, University of Indiana, land-grant agricultural schools. And the one in Illinois, the president was a fella named... Uh, what was that fellow's name? Doesn't make any difference. Shucks, can't remember. But he wrote a book. You heard me talk about it. The name of the book was The Seven Laws of Teaching. Uh, Milton Gregory. I believe his name was Milton Gregory. Yeah. He's buried right on the campus near the, the old moral plots where uh, the, the experimental agricultural plots have been there since 1860-something. 18, and he's buried, buried right there in the graveyard. But he wrote a book called The Seven Laws of Teaching. The first law of teaching, says Milton Gregory, is the teacher must know that which he would teach. <laughs> that seems kind of simple. No, it is simple. But Milton Gregory was, was experienced enough teacher to know that you got to start with the fundamentals. And if you're doing anything worthwhile in life, you never leave the fundamentals. You stay right with them. Or remind yourself, hey, wait a minute, i got to know. If, I, if I'm going to obey or teach others, which is your job also, the law of God, the will of your maker in those two volumes, you got to know something about it. Uh, Charlie called in a while ago, and she quoted, called in, she spoke, she quoted uh, one of the expressions of our laws of nature, our common law. Our court cases are expressions of it. Other things are too. But the court cases are our observations of the nature around us and our relationship to each other and to government and all that. Well, that's what she was quoting there. She quoted the conclusion of that case. Oh, she's wrestling with the laws of nature's God. Um, I suggest, though, that's important. That puts it on the ground, but you can't put it on the ground until you know what it is you're going to put on the ground where the rubber meets the roads, our common law. That's the nexus that brings the Bible, the laws of nature's God, to practical application. Well, who, somebody else probably got something to say. Oh, I need to stop. Uh, thank you, Brad. Uh, Devin, Devin had a real quick question. We've got a couple of more minutes, and I do want to make sure that we save some time so Brent can talk about CommonLawyer.com and the things he's got going on there. But Devin, uh, can we address your question real quick? Yeah, it, it should hopefully be a very easy question. Um, so, uh, Brent, you mentioned uh, some woes about the translations of the King James Bible. Are there any translations of the Bible that you recommend? I recommend mine. <laughs> <laughs> that was a loaded it'd question. Be silly if I, yeah, but it'd be silly if I didn't because, I, well, I think it's worthwhile, but I did not translate it for other people. Every translation has a purpose behind it that is cheap. The King James did, too. And all of them that went before and after... And all the translations of the Bible into English after the King James were revisions of the King James translation until the New American Standard Bible of 1971. It's called New American Standard because 
the point of that word was to say, we're going back to the original tongues. We're not looking at other translations. So they called it New American Standard. But all of those, that's the authorized version of the, of the crown of England, King James I. And so it wasn't until 1881 did another translation come out from the Church of England, which is part of the government, as you know, of England that said, this is an authorized version. And it was a revision of the King James. The reason they wanted to do that, because of all the manuscript evidence that had arisen, they only had about a half a dozen manuscripts of the New Testament when the King James Bible came out. And the, the Textus Receptus, which is the New Testament version of the Greek tongue that the King James translators used, was based upon half a dozen Greek manuscripts. In the last 12 verses, of the Bible in the book of Revelation, they didn't have any Greek manuscripts at all for those 12 verses. And uh, Erasmus, who put together those manuscripts, uh, tra back translated the last 12 verses from Latin into Greek so that he could be the first one to get a, a Greek uh, compilation of those manuscripts out of the New Testament. And he introduced 12 scribal variations into the text when he did that because a pretty good job. I mean, from Latin back into Greek, it was pretty good, but there were variations because he didn't know what the Greek text was. And now we have, instead of half a dozen, just six, maybe seven, if you count some little ones, manuscripts, we have almost 6,000 handwritten manuscripts that were copied out before the advent of the printing press. And we have, uh, when the King James Bible was translated, those 12 or half a dozen manuscripts were from the 12th century forward. Now we have manuscript evidence from the second century. We have discovered, we, I mean, the church of God, God's people have discovered fragments and manuscripts going back, clear back to about 100 to 125 AD. P47, I believe is the name of that one. P47. It's a fragment of the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Fascinating right. story how it was discovered. It was discovered in a shoebox, in a shoebox of fragments. Go ahead, in Oxford, England. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, CommonLawyer.com. CommonLawyer.com. We've had Brent Winters on the program with us today. I do believe that we just dropped off the Eurofolk.com um, or the Eurofolk radio stream. The Global Voice Network stream is still up. I just wanted to make sure that I, I mentioned Common Lawyer before Eurofolk went down. So go ahead and continue, Brent. Thanks. Brent, I have, I have something to add to what I was asking. Go ahead. Um, so when you talked about the facts uh, um, that were presented to us when we were born, you know, we learn whatever they we were taught. So the facts were not av readily available to us. And I'm wondering if there's a certain kind of wording or a law as a common law citizen, national citizen, what would we be able to use to do a retro if we needed to? And it's a question that- Well, you have to request ask. it first. He we have not because we asked not. If you want it to be retroactive, you say so. And that's, there's a whole body of law about retroactive laws, but it certainly should be if that's you're asking about what your status is as a person. Let me make one other comment here, though. And much is made in the patriot community about contract law. I don't have a contract to do this with the government to contract to do that. That's in most cases not relevant because the 
the obligations that men have to the governments that they form are not contracts with individuals. Never have been friends, neighbors, and kin, and never will be. Um, what we have, the obligation, for example, let me use this as an example. The obligation to pay taxes, whatever lawful taxes are, without, let's don't go into any of those arguments, just say, well, some taxes are lawful, for instance, under our constitutional, our constitutional government in America. Uh, whatever taxes are paid are not a matter of contract. They're a matter of obligation. Contract is about debt. Show me a debt and I will show you a contract. Show me a contract and I will show you a debt. That's not what, that's not what taxes are. Taxes are not debts. They're obligations. Obligations like militia duty. If they're lawful, they're obligations. Militia duty is not about a contract. You were born on this land. That wasn't your choice. But if you're born on this land that the Lord thy God has given you, then you're a national of the, of the powers that be that are here. That's the way God has made humanity. That's the way it works. If you don't like it here, you can go someplace else. If you, want to, if you think they're doing things wrong here, we have our common law tradition has established ways to deal with that. But don't get into the sovereign citizen movement. There is no sovereign citizen in America. Sovereign citizen. That's a contradiction of terms. It's like saying Roman Catholic. Catholic means universal. Rome limits it. That's a contradiction. I'm not the first one to say that. That's what the reformers said 500 years ago. It's true. The evil empire is full of those kinds of contradictions that become politically correct speech, and they're wrong. Only God, friends, neighbors, and kin, is sovereign. Only God. Sovereign is an absolute term. It admits of no exceptions. Sovereignty means that his will prevails no matter what. Period. And he has the final say on everything that happens among men. That's sovereignty. I don't have that final say. I'm a creature, not a creator. I am creaturely. Therefore, my existence uh, is limited uh, by the size of my sovereign. Now, do we have sovereigns down here on land? Yes, we have. We use a word called limited sovereignty. Limited sovereignty. I mean, if this sovereign citizen movement would say, I am a limited sovereign, that would be more palatable to me because <laughs> even governments that God ordains on land, uh, they're sovereign down here on land, but they're limited by the existence of the creator of all things. That's the difference between the law of the land and the law of the city. The law of the city admits, of the code of Justinian admits of no limits to government. It admits of no supreme judge of all the world. And if men do not have in their consciousness an outside force that limits the will of men, my will and the will of those in government, then we are under absolutism, tyranny, and hell. And that's what all of the law of the city is. It doesn't acknowledge that outside force, which is a very personal force of our creator. That's what that is. So let's don't talk about contracts with government. Uh, our obligation to government, our lawful obligations, are not a matter of contract. Our courts have been pretty careful to distinguish between the word obligation and debt. Now, when you learn about contract law, you learn about in a common law, the common law of promises, we call it, we learn that uh, it's always a matter of debt. Something is owed, but it's better to say debt. You know, the word obligation and debt are really two different concepts in our Anglo-Saxon tongue. Uh, I'm obliged to respect my father and my mother. That's an obligation that God has laid on me. 
I didn't contract with God to do that. I didn't contract with God to be a Christian. I didn't say, God, if you will do this, I will do that. And by the way, if you try to do that, he's going to make you hurt for it because that's not the way it works. God lays out the terms of his relationship with you, and you either say amen or you don't. You don't deal with God. You don't cut a deal with God. Jacob, the man God later called Israel, by the way, the word Israel means God wins. It does not mean wrestler with God fundamentally. It means God wins because God always wins. He's sovereign. But his relationship to you is, here's what I've done for you. Uh, say amen to it. Accept it. That's all I ask. And you don't ask to be born from above. You, you have nothing in it. He does that entirely. Nothing you do. Nothing in my hand I bring. I don't bring anything to God. No, he, he says, here's the way it is. Friends, neighbors, and kin, that's not a common law contract. That's what the ancients used to call a Caesarean treaty, a Caesarean treaty. When God came to Abraham, he said to him, Genesis chapter 15, well, Genesis 12, then he fleshes it out finally in 15. He says, here's what I'm going to do for you and your descendants. He didn't say, what do you think? Let's, let's, let's talk about this. He didn't say that. Here's what I'm going to do. He lays it out. And Abraham says, he uses this word, it's the first appearance of this word in the Bible. It's a Hebrew word. He says, amen. Amen in the Hebrew text. What does that mean? That means I accept, I agree, rock solid, it's firm. It's a word really that means rock solid. Rock solid, amen. And it was counted to him for righteousness. I mentioned this a while ago. But he didn't dicker with God. Jacob, later named Israel, God wins. He tried to dicker with God. He said, hey God, if you will do this, I will be your man. And you will be my God. God just stepped back and shook his head. And then they got into a horrible wrestling match. Wrestling match. Lasted all night long. And finally, God said, in the person of Jesus Christ, by the way, pre-incarnate, he said, let go of me. You're not, you're, I, I don't have anything to do with you. You're not, you don't get it. I don't, I don't dicker with anybody. And this is by analogy, and he wouldn't let go of him. And finally, God said, okay, you're not going to let go of me. I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Finally, God busted his thigh, busted the tendon in his thigh, got him flat on his back. This is a wrestling match. Read about it. Flat on his back. And then after he got him flat on his back and he couldn't wrestle anymore, it says there he blessed him. God will get you flat on your back. He'll bust you up to where you can't fight with him. You're going to try to dicker with him. It ain't going to happen. If he wants you to stop, he'll stop you. But don't, don't make it hard. Don't wrestle with him. Just forget it. Just say amen to what he says and what he promises to do. You see, there's two kinds of a contract is a reciprocal exchange of value, exchange of promises usually. I'll give you $500 if you'll paint my house. What? And the other guy says, I agree. Well, that's an exchange of promises, exchange of something of value. Your relationship with God is not that way. You give him nothing, but he promises to give you everything. You either accept it or reject it. That's why we say in true religion, and it is, the Bible calls it the true religion, God promises you something. You either take it, you take it or leave it. That's it. But in a contract relationship, a common law, we call a common law banal contract. You dicker, you exchange something of value, you cut a deal. 
Be careful when you're talking about your relationship to the government. At what point, at what point do you have a contract with the government? The government, frankly, friends, the government of the United States doesn't have any jurisdiction to contract with you. The Constitution doesn't grant it. And when the government of the United States comes to the farmer, as they started doing under the, the, the communist jurisdiction of Roosevelt, say, hey, we'll pay you money. If you agree to mow, set aside land, to mow it or plow it under once a year, we'll pay money to you just like you grew a crop on it. What we ever think, whatever we think uh, the crop would have been worth. Well, that's a contract. But where in the co uh, Constitution of the United States or the government of the United States have authority to make a contract with a farmer like that? You do this, we'll do that. It doesn't. Governments are different animals, friends. And there is never a time in the history, to add one more thing, I've tried to dispel the mythology. I call it patriot mythology. There never has been a time in, the, in our common law tradition that uh, a government, the courts did not view governments as corporations. That's the only way you can deal with them. There is no other way for courts to do that. And to say they're now incorporated, well, they didn't need to be incorporated. They're already, the courts have already viewed them as a corporate entity. When you sue the government, who do you sue? Well, you can sue the president in some cases, and the, traditionally we do that too. But when it comes down to it, we view them as a thing, a faceless thing. That's the way we've always dealt with governments from the very beginning of our country, state governments, federal governments. And there are exceptions to that too. But when you're dealing with the sovereign, the sovereign on earth of the governments of men are limited by law. Law limits governments. Law, the law of God uh, is different for, as to him and his government. But what does he say about our government? What is our relationship to the general government in Washington, D.C., or if you're in England, the crown of England, or the state government? You want to know about that? You got to find out what God says about it. And you can read about that in his book called the Bible. It's all there. Romans chapter 13 is very well known, lays out a lot of that. You can read the historical books of the Older Testament. You'll see things that I don't see and other people don't see. And you can learn how to deal with governments. You can go to the book of Acts and it will show you there how to deal with being in the world, this the world order, the cosmos, and not being of it. But see, it always comes back to the same thing. Doesn't it? it always comes back to, do you know what God wants you to do in relation to your government? Uh, if you don't know what the Bible says, you're just flailing. As Paul the Apostle says, you're shadow boxing. You're flailing away at the air. No, he says, if you're going to box, you train to strike the blow that gets the knockout. Uh, all scattered fires, but end in smoke and noise. I'm coming back to that. So, it comes back to knowing what the Bible says. Now, let me say this. Some of you are still here. We try to focus on those two volumes. That's my conclusion in life. And so we talk about our common law here. But thank you, particularly about the law of God, thank, well, thank you for bringing up the question. To talk particularly about the law of God, join us on Saturdays, Patriot Soapbox. Join us on Sundays, Patriot Soapbox. We're going through the book of Romans on Saturdays. And we're going through the book of Genesis on Sundays, clause by clause and blow by blow. Well, <clears throat> I think people are trailing off here. I need to stop. No, actually, they're not. So I, long, and then I... 
We, we've oh, still got 81. Oh. We've got 80 people in on Jitsi. Uh, Global Voice Network is still up, and uh, the clock doesn't run out for another 53 minutes on that one. So if you've got something you want to talk about and you've got time to hang, we're here. I appreciate Amen. the explanation, Brent. That was a great explanation. Well, Brent, I, I've got something that I think goes along with what you're saying. Uh -huh. um, I'm, I'm trying to bring forward my allodial title, and in doing that, I read Judge Stamper's comments on it. And like you say about being a national, he says, behind every mortgage, behind every real estate, etc., etc., stands the allodial title because that is the law of the land. What do you say about that? Well, I agree. The lodial title is the foundation of the entire chain of title that you can get in an abstract if you can get your hands on it. The lodial title comes in, in the cases of, of um, land, for example, where I'm from, the Northwest Territories and that part of the world along the Ohio River. That comes from uh, the United States. Uh, where I lived, it was part of the colony of Virginia. I'll just use this as an example. Texas is different, of course, because they were never part of that uh, original uh, land grant from the Crown of England. The Crown of England made a land grant to Virginia. That land grant stretched as far as clear to the Pacific Ocean, but nobody, nobody knew it was out there. So it stretched at least as far as the Mississippi River. That land then was taken, uh, uh, was transferred to uh, Quebec, and that's one of the reasons we went to war with Britain, because the charter, they denied their own charter. And that charter is a, is a contract, by the way, in that sense. It was a reciprocal relationship, a, a quid pro quo. And so Virginia went to war, and they went to war, and they sent uh, George Rogers Clark, Patrick Henry, commissioned George Rogers Clark to go take their western lands back. So he went west and attacked the forts at Kaskaskia and Vincennes, Indiana, Kaskaskia, Illinois, on Mississippi, Vincennes, Indiana, and he took those forts back, or the, took that land back. And then, and then during the war, Britain reoccupied those lands, and then we won the war, and then Virginia ceded those lands in great magnanimity, as did Connecticut and other colonies along the seaboard to the national government in Washington, D.C., so they could sell it for $5 an acre and try to pay off the debt. Now, the Lodial title came from the Crown of England. That's where it started. Nobody else had a Lodial title before that. The men that lived here before that, the red men, had no concept of land ownership. They didn't even think a person could own land. Uh, they never sold any land. You talk about you talk about mistake of fact. When the Indians in Manhattan sold Manhattan supposedly for a handful of beads, the they had no idea, mistake, mutual mistake of fact. They had no idea, no concept that you could own the land. That wasn't something you could do. Why? Well, they worship the land. How can you, how can you worship your God, Mother Earth? They, they couldn't do that. So that was a mutual mistake of fact. In contract law, it was unenforceable. But as time turned out, as time turned out, God is the allodial landlord of all land. That's the first thing you got to understand. And the Bible, that's the theme throughout the entire Bible, God, the maker of all things. This is his land. And at every point in the Bible, you see that affirmed over and over and over again. And whoever occupies it is his business, by the way. And for whatever reason, we occupy it now. The allodial title went 
from the crown of England who settled here first and claimed title through the settlements that came here. And that allodial title coming from God himself through the crown of England then went to the states, which had been colonies. And then state of Virginia, just using that as an example, transferred that land to the general government in Washington, D.C., their western lands beyond the Alleghenies. And then that land was sold for $5 an acre. But the foundation of every acre of land along the Ohio River like that uh, is back in that allodial title. Now let's go back to, and Roger and I have talked about this a lot, and then I got to go. I'm going to make this one explanation. Back to what happened in 1066. In 1066, a fellow from, whose family was from Norway, he was called a Norman. They had settled on the coast of France for many decades, and they invaded England, and he defeated the Anglo-Saxons and the Anglo-Danes. And he, being a Norwegian, took over the crown of England, and Queen Lizzie, and Queen Charlie, or King Charlie III, they tell me that makes the Brits mad when you say that, but I'm an American, I'm not British. But he is descended from that, that man, William the Conqueror. And by the way, William the Conqueror and all the descendants of him are descended from the Anglo-Saxons going back to the 5th century. Um, a very important uh, man, an Anglo-Saxon king back then. I wouldn't pronounce his name right, so I'm not going to mention it. But that title, through the crown of England, uh, established a lodial title. When William the Conqueror conquered England, he said, I have a lodial title to all land in England. And because he said that, and he followed the common law tradition to a great degree and declared the common law in force, but he brought with him the imprint of Rome and the ability to administrate to a very stark and high detailed degree. That's what he brought to our common law and our common law of real estate. And to understand what happened there is to understand land law in the United States. And by the way, all of that transferred to us, and that's a, an important study. I'm going to recommend one book about that. I know this is a crowd that's interested in learning the truth. I'm going to recommend one book, and uh, it's by a fella named Monahan. It's a little, it's a small volume. And it's about property law. And Monaghan, it's a, a book that used, was used in the law schools for a long time. Monaghan traces the history of our common law of land, our land law, our law of the land, and what happened to it with William the Conqueror, and why it happened, what a lodial title means. What a lodial means, it's, it's an old Scandinavian word that means, that means, that, that, that signifies the owner of land that owes nobody above him any obligations at all. Of course, William the Conqueror owed his obligation to God. God is the supreme lodial landlord. But down here among men, he owned, owed no obligation. And he parceled out that land um, with the requirement to his 200 chief officers of his army, with the requirement that each one of them, according to how much land was parceled out, would, would provide to him X number of knights mounted on a horse, fully trained and equipped for battle for 40 days apiece. And that was the whole system of self-defense, which is analogous to our, of course, our militia. And there was no money, so taxes on land was paid by being willing to defend the land against enemies, foreign. And that's where our common law oath comes from, which is more ancient, by the way, than even William I. It went way back. The militia, the Volkreich, 
the able-bodied men to declare the land or defend it against enemies foreign and to be willing to serve on the jury. It's a common law country. We use the jury to be willing to serve on the jury and to defend against enemies domestic. That's the two duties of the militiamen. That's the fundamental government of our common law. I got to go. Thank you so much. Brett, the title of that book one more time. Participating. The, the title Monaghan, of that book. It's called the, the, well, I remember, I'm sorry, I'll tell you what it's about. I don't remember the exact title. I remember the author more than the title. His name is Monaghan. I don't even remember how to spell it. I think there's an apostrophe in the word. It's an old uh, Celtic name, I think, like McConaughey, but then they put an apostrophe in there. Monaghan, and the subject is property, and I think the word property is in the, in the title uh, property law, or I don't know what it is, but just get on the internet and okay, turn thank up. you. But and then he gets into a lot of detail you might be not might not be interested in at all. You know, it's important when you go to read a book. I, I tell people this that are young: tell your children this. If you're going to go to college or go to school someplace, don't take subjects. Don't choose subjects to take. Choose professors to take, <laughs> because. If the professor isn't worth listening to, and uh, you may as well go someplace else. I don't care what the subject is. Choose professors. Choose authors of book books to read, not subjects. Authors. That's more important, frankly. But in this case, they both go together, and they're good. All right. Well, thank you so much, and I'll try to find out what happened to Roger, see if he's okay, and you do too. Thank you, Brent, and thank you for being okay. with us. Thank today. you much. I, 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 you made what could have Thank possibly you for been a train moderate. wreck a that great show. Me a lot. Yeah, I, <laughs> well, I feel that way about you moderating, as I said. That helps a lot. All right. This is Brent Allen Winters, by the way, commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. Yes, and uh, great website and great website. I, I camp out there <laughs> quite often looking at this, that, and the other thing. So uh, with that, I'm going to drop us off the server. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, Brent Ellen Winters on the Radio Ranch program, uh, the normal Radio Ranch time slot. However, Roger was unable to be with us today. So thank you so much for joining us on Global Voice Network and Eurofolk Radio. Uh, we will catch you right here next time, Monday through Saturday. Saturday, uh, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, you can find more information on the topics discussed on TheMatrixDocs.com. That is TheMatrixDocs.com. Thank you for the 80-some people that were on the board. Thank you for all the questions and the intelligent discourse that occurred today. I'm Paul for Global Voice Radio Network, radio.globalvoiceradio.net. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. Forward moving and focused on freedom. You're listening to the Global Voice Radio Network. <laughs>